Hello and welcome to this second Euromni Podcasts episode on innovation inside big banks, part of our Banking on Fintech series. In the first episode, I asked the question of whether big banks can innovate. In this episode, I'm going to be looking in more detail at how exactly big banks can build radically different businesses based on new technology and consumer habits. I'll be looking at the sort of models you're seeing emerge, speaking to the people leading them, and thinking about the vital ingredients for those ventures. Previously, I'd looked at innovation in big banks, including Citi, Standard Chartered, and Societe Generale. I heard about how they're building digital ventures, often from ideas that came up inside the business at arm's length, but not entirely divorced from the main bank. The point is to try to have the benefit of the bank without the downsides. This is also similar to Banco Santander's Pago Next, a global payments platform it set up in late 2020. Pago Next's biggest business is GetNet, a Brazilian merchant acquirer now launching in Europe and which Santander listed late last year. It also houses SuperDigital, a Latin American low-cost account provider, and various international trade businesses, including recently acquired fintechs Ibri and Mercury TFS. Javier Sanfelix, Pagonext's chief executive, told me last autumn that Pagonext is, quote, trying to blend the both of both worlds of the bank and a fintech. It's an open secret that Pagonext might do an IPO, which would further mark out its independence from Santander. But Pagonext's chairman is the group executive chairman, Anna Botin. Also, GetNet, which is largely the inspiration for the entire Pagonext platform, has been successful largely because other parts of the bank in Brazil have helped sell it. So first of all, these new ventures need to have a degree of separation, and there are several reasons for that. Here's Alex Manson, head of SC Ventures at Standard Chartered, talking to me about the ventures it is building. The setup is, is very separate and distinct. So, so, so the venture operates on length from the bank. Um, it is set up in a separate legal entity. Um, the, the venture is run by a management team, meaning as a venture CEO and management team. Um, they are incentivized with, uh, with an ESOP, which is associated with the venture itself, as opposed to, 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 uh, to, to the bank. They report to a board. As long as we control the majority of, uh, of a venture, we control the board. Um, but that wouldn't necessarily be the case if we own the minority of the venture. And clearly, other investors have their uh, rightful representation on the board as well. We also have designed governance policies and processes that are consistent with the bank's risk appetite as a backer, but appropriate for digital ventures as opposed to, to, to for the bank. So the governance of the venture is, is specific to them. And what we, we have them do from a policies perspective is appropriate for them as a function of what it is that they do. The risk involved in setting up innovative businesses inside the bank is also something City tried to get around after it set up D10X, its program for in-house entrepreneurs. Vanessa Colella helped set up D10X. I spoke to her just before she left as City's innovation officer to take on a similar role at Visa earlier this year. Living in Silicon Valley for many decades, you know, the, the archetype of Silicon Valley is, you know, just try something and if it doesn't work, you'll move on. Right. But in banking, you can't do that. Right. That would go exactly in opposition to our commitment to the safety and soundness of our banking system. So how do you experiment 
when you don't know if the experiment is going to work, but you also can't be in a situation where you're introducing incremental risk either to, you know, to city or to our clients. And so what we've done with D10X is we developed a, a number of methodologies to test ideas without putting them into production. Um, which sounds really easy, but it is actually hard. You know, speaking to you from America, I will give you my example of, you know, if you ask people, you know, how often do they go to the gym? Most people will tell you, oh, I work out, you know, four or five times a week. Uh, but if you look at the U.S. population, um, you'll see that, you know, most people probably given you know, the shape that they're in, they're probably not going to the gym four or five times a week. They don't tell you that because they're, they want to you know, mislead you. Um, people tell you generally what they think that you want to hear because it's part of sort of the social contract. And so in order to test things without in introducing risk, right, we have to be able to test them in a non-production fashion. Um, but we also need to be able to test them in a way that gets us to the core truth of the answer, not to what people think they, they ought to be telling you. So, you know, just as an example of that, you know, I was talking about Onward earlier, when we were early on testing Onward, you know, we were, we were testing using, you know, online artifacts to see, you know, whether or not people would really be willing to engage in something that helped them to communicate with their ex-spouse um, regarding financial issues, right? Uh, we didn't just ask them, we actually sort of walked them through what that would be like and, and to try and get a, a real sense of whether or not they would be willing to engage. Now, what we did not do is we did not move any money because that would get us into kind of the production risk angle of things. So it's really just a methodology of being able to test ideas without introducing incremental risk um, to gain more conviction about then putting those ideas out into market. But if some banks have realized the need for their ventures to be separate, there's also more of a realization now that those ventures need to maintain relevance to the main bank, including getting buy-in from the top management, if they're going to have a competitive advantage over independent fintech firms. Barclays has seen a similar shift in its innovation function recently to make sure the startups it helps have relevance to Barclays and can make use of its network and expertise. The 190 companies that have been through Barclays' accelerator program include blockchain company Chainalysis, event software company Cutover, and Flux, a rewards program. But in February, it announced a new partnership with Rainmaking, a company set up to help companies build digital ventures and previously the founder of Startup Bootcamp. As part of that partnership with Rainmaking, Barclays is going to be focusing on slightly later stage companies in the Rise Growth Academy. And it's also setting up something called the FinTech Venture Studio, involving internal staff, other corporates and FinTechs. Unlike other banks focusing on venture building, this is more of a studio approach in the sense that it's less focused on companies that are necessarily controlled by Barclays, but it's similar in the sense of getting serious about its own advantages as a fintech player. I spoke to Barclays Chief Innovation Officer Marikit Korkorn about it. When we used to run accelerator programs, it used to be if you are a fintech, please apply. You can find some great companies who were pitching a solution or an idea that sounded great, but there could be no business use case at Barclays, right? So that could be very difficult to help them or support them. And 
what we thought about as we changed the structure of our programming is instead of just being you know, broadly out there looking for great companies, why don't we go out there looking for companies in a specific area that we know a business at Barclays is interested in or wants to find companies with innovative solutions in. And that way from the onset, we already have a business that is supporting the work that we're doing and is going to be working with these potential companies in the forward. So that's how I think you make real innovation happen. You need to be really pointed. You need the business support ahead of time because frankly, right, I'm the chief innovation officer for, for the bank. If there's a company I really, really like or I think has great opportunity, but nobody else agrees, there's not much I can do about that, right? I do need the actual business partners and heads to agree with me and want to leverage that technology or solution. Clearly, the key dynamic in making innovation work inside a bank is getting the distance right. It needs to be close enough to be relevant, valued, but not so close that it's stifled. There's a similar debate about whether to keep venture capital arms in-house or to spin them out, as BBVA, Comets Bank, and most recently Santander have done. Corporate venture capital funds that remain in-house are more likely to suffer from a negative selection bias when it comes to the companies they get and sometimes their staff, says Comets Ventures managing partner Heiko Schwender. To get the best people into your own team, you need to provide the right incentives. And the right incentives in the venture capital space is the carry, carry interest, i.e. being, let's say, investing your own money. However, when the, when the fund is returned and there's, of course, a profit, a surplus, that you receive your carried interest. This is the, the carrot in the, in the venture capital industry. And those structures are quite difficult to establish within regulated banking groups. Um, maybe it, it works outside of Europe, but without a carried interest structure, it will be really difficult to convince experienced people from traditional VCs with a carried interest to join your fund. But you need, of course, to, to have the best people in place to, to get to the best uh, investment opportunities. Importantly, according to Schwender, it's not always been clear to startups what they're getting from bank-owned venture capital funds. It's definitely the case that, let's say, the, the best startups can choose their respective investors. And still in Series A's, you don't see often, let's say, strategics coming in. They sometimes come in as, let's say, a follower investor, but only if they provide a clear, let's say, value add, i.e., talking about typical, let's say, corporate venture arm where the respective financial institution behind him or her can, let's say, become immediately a customer. People at funds that have spun out say they still help the parent keep on top of the latest trends in fintech and help facilitate partnerships. But there are obviously disadvantages. For example, if there's less control over what the fund invests in, it's probably more likely to invest in a competitor. Although Barclays has a principal investments arm, its innovation department is built less around a venture capital fund. That's largely out of a recognition that its main differential from a startup's perspective is not capital, as Corcoran tells me. I've personally talked to hundreds and hundreds of founders over the last four or five years. Um, oftentimes, I think it's really difficult for a company to partner with one bank early on. Um, and so they they often will um, opt not to do that or certainly not want a majority stake from a particular bank because that could influence the opportunity to expand their businesses across other financial institutions. 
for actually working with the companies and helping them, um, you know, kind of think through their market strategy, build their team. We look at the engagement with with the startup ecosystem to be a lot more of a ongoing partnership and working together versus just deploying capital. There's a lot of capital out there, um, banks, VCs, private equities, you know, any investors, et cetera. We can, you know, I think banks can certainly fill that, but I think there's a lot more we can do as well, given the expertise and connections and sort of the, the thought leadership that Barclays and its extended network can provide a lot of these companies. Uh, most of them are looking more for that than just capital. Um, certainly, again, capital is important, but they're really looking for quite a bit of that hands-on help. But other banks think venture capital and investing is an intrinsic part of fostering innovation inside their organizations and building new businesses because it helps them secure commercial partnerships with fintechs and to keep an eye on what's happening outside the group. Jerome Plack, head of corporate strategy at ING and now also running the Dutch bank's innovation function, tells me about how ING Labs works with ING Ventures, its venture capital arm. We always look at what are the customer pains slash opportunities that we see out there. And via the various value spaces that we have identified, housing, financial health, trade, disrupt lending, safe, secure, we work with a team that is focusing on strategy exploration and they look at the problem. They see, is this something that we can work on together with a fintech? Is there a fintech partnership out there uh, that can help us to solve this problem? Is there via the venture fund an opportunity to invest in a new technology company that can help us to, to solve this problem? Is there an opportunity if one and, and two are not feasible to build it ourselves? Um, is, is that an opportunity as well? Even if the bank builds its own venture from the labs, however, it could end up transferring the company out of the labs and into another part of the bank or spinning it out and then retaining a stake via the venture capital fund. After we've built something is that we decide either to spin it in because it is uh, addressing a business specific problem. We spin it out because we believe, uh, uh, well, it's, it's great technology, but don't see the potential to, to make this fly within ING. And we have a couple of examples, Stemly, Semi, uh, Cobase. Uh, now, in all those three, actually, we have also invested from the venture fund because we do believe they are great propositions. However, at this point in time, uh, we believe that they are better off outside of ING. Compared to ING, Standard Charter's venture capital arm is a bit different because it doesn't invest in companies that aren't partners to the bank or its ventures. Still, Nansen says the fund, as well as a program for in-house entrepreneurs and a portfolio of ventures, are all vital to the overall goal of rewiring the bank's DNA, as he calls it. The premise when we set up SC Ventures was that either one of, by the way, a lab, an innovation lab internally, or a venture building operation, or a venture capital investment business on its own would, would fail to have the transformational impact that we want to have um, for, for different reasons. But, uh, but typically, ventures are too small, take too long to build. Financial investments are, are going to be either too close to the bank, they're strategic, and you end up justifying the, the wrong investments by calling them strategic and so you're you're, you're going to get adversely selected for you know because it's all within the bank it's clunky etc or it's well set up it's outside the bank it's a professional vc operation in which case you know the, the, the bank gets you know, gets not a whole lot out of it 
um, and, uh, and and people may, may lose patience down the line. And then the lab itself, if not equipped with uh, with the ability to 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 build things and deploy capital, is is ultimately going to be uh, limited in impact. So the bet we're making is that the combination of all these things is infinitely more powerful than any of these things on their own. This is actually a three-pronged approach that you can see typically in a looser form at other banks too. Clearly, time will tell whose approach is best. So I hope you've enjoyed listening. Please do share on social media and add your thoughts to the discussion. This has been a Euromoney podcast by Dominic O'Neill with sound editing by Stefan Inglis. <laughs>